Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to have as our guest today, Dr. Rory Cooper. Dr. Cooper is a distinguished professor of rehabilitation science and technology in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, his formal education is in electrical engineering, but he's applied this in many very interesting and innovative ways. His research interests include assistive technology design and instrumentation, standards and quality assurance, international rehabilitation, and assistive technology policy and access. Dr. Cooper, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you with, here today at Regenerative Medicine Today. Well, John, it's a pleasure to be here. I mentioned that in my introduction that you've got uh, many interesting endeavors, and I tried to highlight the, the general categories, but... Uh, in addition to that, I know that you've been a pioneer in developing and, uh, and getting funded a, an engineering research center. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about that endeavor and what the status of it is, please? Yes, the uh, engineering research center has, has been an activity that we've probably worked on for a good 10 years, but um, now probably a really concentrated effort for about five years. It's a partnership between uh, the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon University, and the idea is to bring robotics and artificial intelligence technology to bear on problems facing individuals with disabilities and older Americans. And so we're uh, trying to uh, also create this new sort of concept of um, in incorporating clinicians and consumers and uh, all kinds of stakeholders like policymakers and insurance companies, along with engineers working together to define the technological needs, the uh, barriers to bringing this technology to market, and the uh, clinical tools to make the most benefit of the technology. Many of our listeners have heard some previous podcasts where we talked about the need for multidisciplinary teams to uh, uh, pursue uh, various scientific endeavors that we have of interest in this uh, series. And I know that's the case in, in your situation as well, but in terms of what you just shared with us, it seems to me that you've also expanded this to, uh, uh, to a much broader community, not only of the uh, scientists, uh, but also of the customers and the stakeholders. Well, I would think so, and, and hopefully that'll be a model uh, for the future in, in engineering education as well. I know that uh, ABET is looking at uh, uh, using universal design as one of the cornerstones of, of engineering education. I think that we're taking uh, universal design a bit further because, uh, in a sense, universal design uh, requires input from the end user but doesn't necessarily incorporate them into the process. But... Uh, I think assistive technology or quality of life technology, as we now are calling it, uh, mainly because I think there's this, an important distinction between the two that I can get into a little bit later, that um, it is important to incorporate all of the uh, clinical team members. You can think of you know, the physician, the therapist, the rehab engineer, the voc rehab counselor, and uh, all, of the, uh, um, all of those individuals. But... You know, this technology is ultimately going to be used by uh, older Americans and people with disabilities and the uh, uh, insurance companies and even federal policymakers and state policymakers have an important influence as well. And engineers, we can, we can obviously do great things uh, and even working in interdisciplinary teams of academic scientists and engineers 
can do some wonderful things too. But you know, if you want to really uh, change lives of people with disabilities and older people, you need to uh, include them in the process. And uh, it, there's been some fantastic uh, failures in the past where individuals have maybe solved a problem that they thought was intellectually interesting or perhaps a problem for a specific individual, but they didn't look at the issues from a broader context. And um, we're trying to avoid those pitfalls. And you're thinking about uh, technologies like uh, artificial intelligence or robotics and machine learning the, or uh, um, machine perception or machine vision. There's, uh, um, there's still quite a divide between those technologies and, and technologies that are being used currently by people with disabilities. So, In terms of your uh, engineering research center, I know you have many objectives, but uh, perhaps you could uh, just highlight a few of the, uh, of the objectives and what your vision is to uh, what, what maybe the outcomes will be in, say, five years. Well, uh, I think the best way to talk about that is we, what, what we call a family of engineered systems. And uh, to give you an example of one of the families of engineered systems is uh, what's called a virtual coach. And uh, it's a, a device that uh, uh, could be, uh, take any number of uh, forms to assist individuals perhaps with mild cognitive impairment or individuals with compliance with uh, clinical protocols. So let's, uh, to, give it, to delve into that a little bit, to give you one example is uh, you can think about a wearable device you might have around your neck that has a camera and a microphone and some other sensors. And it would um, take a, so you'd come up and, for example, when we, uh, when we uh, saw each other again this morning and say, take a picture and say, hey, that's a uh, whisper in my ear, Rory, that's John Murphy and he works at the McGowan Institute and uh, could say a little bit about your uh, background. So it's kind of like a, a PDA, but it's a PDA that's uh, contextually aware and also can, uh, can do some re a recognition of individuals and environments. The uh, same technology, for example, could be expanded to help an individual who has a mild cognitive impairment or a traumatic brain injury to uh, return to work. And one of the common problems there is, is uh, remembering to perform tasks in sequence or to remember the various sequences of getting a job done. And um, you can't really just use simple timing tasks. In other words, since 9 o'clock, take your medicine, because you may have taken your medicine at 8.59, you may have taken it at 9.00. You know, so the, uh want to have the device realize, so now if the person taken their medication, or let's say you're uh, just simply going through the task of, uh, of uh, making a, a hamburger. And so uh, you know that you um, have to first cook the hamburger patty before you... Uh, put it on the bun and you put all the condiments on it and those sort of things. But it has to know those. Not, that's not, it's a matter of not knowing, not just knowing that you're in sequence, but what the proper sequence is in the proper context. The, uh, another example of the virtual coach is, is a, is a uh, proposal that we've had a graduate student complete her uh, master's thesis on recently, and we're submitting a grant proposal, is that um, in our clinic at the Center for Assistive Technology, We've 
provide a lot of technology to individuals with disabilities. And one form of that technology is uh, uh, powered wheelchairs with powered seating functions to help power leg rests, uh, power, uh, allow the seat to recline, uh, much like a reclining chair that you might have in your living room. Um, also, the seat to tilt, and tilt basically means that you stay in, a, in the same uh, joint angles as a seated posture, but you're tilted with respect to gravity. And uh, these are designed to help individuals with uh, venous blood flow and pressure ulcer prevention and, and comfort and um, another, and also uh, for breathing and for eating and for other functional positioning. And, uh, but one of the problems with it is that um, people don't necessarily use them as directed. Now, to some extent, that's okay to, to find new uses and to um, people need to find ways to accommodate their needs and compensate, basically, uh, for their, um, the tasks that they need to perform and therefore their deficits. But, um, but in some cases, there are certain, certain parts of the uh, clinical advice that need to be followed in order for the, for the technology to actually meet the needs of that individual in order to, for example, to prevent pressure ulcers. So one of the virtual coaches is to monitor the use of this technology, but then also to um, provide intelligent reminders to the individual uh, when they need to, for example, recline or something like that. It's very clear that uh, you uh, de depend on state-of-the-art technology, both electronics and computational sets of, the, of uh, capability. Uh, to accomplish these goals you've, you're setting out to, to, to pursue. Well, and then we're also using what you might consider more uh, formal robotics uh, technology. Uh, we have a device that we call the Permomad, which is a uh, stands for Personal Mobility and Manipulation Device, or um, and it's this. What the uh, concept there is that uh, f for many individuals with severe disabilities that use uh, powered wheelchairs, for example, as their means of mobility. Uh, there's no, uh, they also depend heavily on um, individuals for personal assistance. And uh, so you can imagine that uh, there's literally several million people in the United States that don't have the ability, uh, and many more worldwide, that don't have the ability to just simply open a refrigerator and pull out a soda and drink it or to make themselves a sandwich or even to, uh, to uh, fry an egg. So to tackle that problem, we're looking at using uh, um, bimanual robotic manipulators that can either be attached uh, to a wheelchair, for example, if the wheel person's a wheelchair user. If the person's not a wheelchair user, then uh, you can think of the old Star Wars C-3PO and that the upper torso of this would be... Uh, you can think of having the you know the upper torso on a wheelchair for the person to use, or have the C-3PO in the house in order to assist. Interesting. Then, so you, you're quite a visionary, and I applaud you for that. And so if we were having this, this another discussion like this five years from now, and I asked you to note some of the accomplishments of this program, uh, what might we be talking about? Well, um, I think we'd be talking about people using those devices that I just described. Um, I, I, I really hope that we'll see people, uh, more people with disabilities, being able to uh, perform more activities independently, living longer at home independently, 
and essentially have greater autonomy in their life and participating. Um, I think one of the barriers in the next five years is going to be uh, getting our um, the third-party payers and the government to recognize the, the benefits of getting older people and people with disabilities to continue to participate in their communities and get out of their home and live independently. But I think you'll see some... Some, I think that we're going to see smarter devices. I think that's, that's just, it's probably not a trend yet, but I think if, uh, if I had to predict the future, all of the technology that people with disabilities and older people are going to use, and I think it's going to be more commonplace technology. Just like, um, you know, drag and dictate is not a technology, it was a technology developed for people with disabilities that's used commonly. The Segway is, is an outgrowth of the iBot, which is a, was a device, robotic mobility device created for people with disabilities. And the Segway is a general population type device. Uh, I think that a lot of um, the uh, features, for example, on, on Word, our, uh, our office, are, were actually designed for people with disabilities. The ability to change the uh, uh, zoom in and zoom out. And... Uh, so I think there's going to be a blending of uh, mainstream technology and, and technology for people with disabilities. You mentioned you mentioned cost, and needless to say, all these technologies come with come at a cost. But you also mentioned that you expect these uh, technologies to be able to help people to have to be independently uh, live for, for an extended period of time. I mean, I assume it's co could should be cost effective to use these technologies as opposed to uh, other traditional forms of uh, helping people with uh, severe disabilities? Yeah, cost is always a sensitive issue. I think that uh, these, I actually think these technologies um, will save money, but not, uh, the, but the problem is that our healthcare system is in a series of silos. And so the silo that typically provides for assistive technology may actually wind up spending more money. But the silo that treats the, treats the pressure ulcers or pays for the attendant care or uh, pays for the, the person to be in a nursing home that could be independent through this technology might save money. And I, and I think as we look at our national health care system, we have to look at removing these silos and taking a more comprehensive picture of the healthcare and uh, rehabilitative needs of individuals with disabilities. Yeah, I would, at least from my perspective, think it's the overall cost-effectiveness that we're interested in, not the cost-effectiveness of silo A versus silo B. Well, I think so, and I also think you can you'd look at the picture of if you're able to get people back to work or allow people to work longer, you know, there's another, uh, certainly another cost savings. And often these things are not looked at in the, in the aggregate or nobody takes the overall view. And I think that's something that uh, maybe with uh, some of the current interest in healthcare policy in the United States might start to become addressed or at least uh, be, could it be an item on the table for further discussion. Very good. I mean, we've been talking about uh, people with, with, uh, in need of uh, some of these technologies, but perhaps it's worth spending a moment to talk about the magnitude of this problem, both in terms of it is now and uh, what you might foresee it to be in, in the in near future. Well, it's, uh, it's pretty clear um, that in, in, uh, in all of the industrialized countries that the populations are getting older and there's a... a, a 
you know, there's, there's going to be an inflection point in the curve here now on, on the aging population. You know, in the United States, we call them baby boomers. Uh, Japan is a little bit ahead of us in its growing population of older individuals. Uh, Europe is, uh, is also following a similar trend that uh, we're going to um, have to address these issues. And the you know, nice thing is that healthcare has uh, done a great job of keeping, letting people live longer and live uh, more years of active life. And uh, that's also created expectations that uh, the technology will help address those problems and all people live longer and healthier active lives. The, um, but I think that, you know, there's, the United States, there's about 40 million people that have some form of uh, disability. Uh, that uh, ratio is, um, you know, 1 to 7, 1 to 10, is pretty consistent around the world which uh, you know, leaves us with somewhere uh, between uh, uh, you know, 600 million and 800, you know, a billion people worldwide that can certainly uh, have some sort of um, physical, cognitive, or sensory impairment. That, and, uh, and all of them are essentially technology users. And the funny thing is, is that uh, those are people that identify themselves as having some form of disability, but almost, uh, almost everyone is affected by uh, disability, and not only that, they, uh, there's a lot more people that use technology and just think of it as simply as mainstream technology. You can just think of uh, you know, door handles rather than doorknobs and eyeglasses and things like that that are not even really thought of anymore as, uh, as technology for a person with a disability. Um, so I think there's a tremendous need. The population of people with disabilities is growing um, in the United States, about 5% per year. Uh, and in some countries, it's growing at a faster rate than that. Uh, and that's you know, something that... One of the reasons is that we can successfully... Uh, we have people like the McGowan Institute who successfully turn terminal conditions into chronic conditions. And, uh, you know, that's a... Well, that's a wonderful thing that also creates new customers for, for those of us in rehabilitation. That's an interesting segue into, uh, I know, one of your other interests and visions. And, of course, McGowan Institute is interested in, uh, in uh, regenerative technologies. And I know you have some very interesting ideas about the fusion of uh, rehabilitation and regeneration. Can you give us a bit of insight into that, please? Yeah, I'd like to. The, well, the, how I see it is that uh, there's kind of it's kind of an interesting sort of maybe think about it as a sort of a feedback loop, and um, I think that in order to have regeneration be successful, it needs to be guided by rehabilitation processes and principles. So, for example, if you um, if you put uh, cells um, or even a, a scaffolding, let's, let's let's take a simple case of a scaffolding tissue. And uh, very common, for example, in my own area of expertise is that rotator cuff tears and injuries to individuals with, that use manual wheelchairs. It's somewhere between 50 and 70% of uh, long-term manual wheelchair users develop a rotator cuff tear. Uh, as we all know, there's really no good surgical intervention uh, for that. And... Um, it's very difficult for a person who needs a manual wheelchair to lay off their shoulder for an extended period of time. 
So regenerative medicine shows a lot of promise here. You need to put a scaffold um, that encourages regrowth of the uh, tendon and causes it to heal. Now we know the problem is that if you don't, if you put, you simply put a scaffold in there and have the person lay in bed for six weeks, what you're likely to have is just to dissolve scaffold and and the tear to continue. And that's where I think the rehabilitative techniques come in, where you need to be uh, using that shoulder. Um, in a, in a, at a level where you encourage growth but don't encourage further damage. And it's uh, you know, the kind of interesting thing about regeneration is it, and largely it mimics an inflammatory process. And so um, it's actually a little bit difficult, going to be difficult for clinicians to determine uh, what's, what is the normal healing, what is healing and what is regeneration and, and what is scarring. But... As the, I think, uh, I think in, the, in regeneration, the issue, I think it's becoming apparent that it's not only building scaffolding in, in the, uh, the cell cultures and the different, um, you know, proteins and growth enzymes. It's, but a lot of it's the, it's the environment and the activity that also affects the results as well. And I think that's where rehabilitation comes, comes in. That's kind of on the front end, and of course the feedback is, is that. Uh, in some cases, a simple case of growing a, um, and I say simple and somewhat ingest because it's not, none of these problems are simple, but um, of a rotator cuff tear, you know, that, that in a sense could, could re, uh, alleviate an entire problem. Now, we get to other issues, uh, the, the regeneration is, for example, let's say regeneration of the spinal cord. Uh, in those cases, that's li- not likely that you'll get complete uh, complete and spontaneous regeneration and people that will be restored to their previous functional state. Uh, you know, that might happen, um, and, I, and I certainly hope it does, for individuals who are in acute spinal cord injury. And so, you know, maybe it can be something like the uh, steroidal approach with methylprednisone in, in ambulances where you, you, know, you basically inject a steroid and, you, and there's been immediate benefits over the last five to ten years that that's been used to uh, restrict the inflammatory response and the ischemic damage to the spinal cord. But the um, uh, what I think is going to happen, for example, in the chronic spinal cord cases, you'll get some regeneration, but there'll be extensive post-rehabilitation in order to come contractures and to build muscle strength. And, and my guess is probably other forms of regenerative medicine will be required in order to restore the integrity of the, of the joints and the connective tissue that's long since been uh, uh, inactive. So, um, you know, that's going to be that whole sort of, here's, okay, so now you've created a sort of a new rehabilitation problem for us. We'll have to develop new rehabilitative techniques and perhaps really new, new technologies like uh, the you know, robotic technologies for locomotion. Use those to help build strength and, uh, and help also encourage the regeneration at the same time. A most interesting fusion, as, as you say. Uh, for our listeners, uh, Dr. Cooper has uh, made reference to uh, tissue engineering and scaffolds, and uh, some of you perhaps have heard uh, Podcast 29, where we had Dr. Stephen Badalak visit with us again and uh, talk about some of those tissue engineering techniques. So uh, that's a good link between Dr. Cooper's interests and uh, Dr. Badalak's interests. Uh, Dr. Cooper, I, I know that you also have an interest in... Uh, in brain injury, uh, can you uh, share with us uh, some of your interests and efforts in that regard, please? 
Yeah, I think that uh, traumatic brain injury is 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 going to be one of the um, the the foci of disability research and policy in the next decade. It's uh, there's so little we know about uh, the the rehabilitation and, and treatment of traumatic brain injury, and it's it's certainly uh, I imagine that you know that's probably the uh, the holy grail of rehabilitative. Uh, re, uh, rehabilitation, as well as in uh, regenerative medicine, is to uh, to reverse the impact of a of the cause of traumatic brain injury. And I think that uh, this is something that we um, probably need to put greater effort into. And I think it's one of those areas where you can it involves uh, psychiatry, psychology, neuropsychology, uh, medicine, uh, regeneration. As well as uh, as technological interventions, you know, a new essentially in, in the last few years, a whole new field of uh, you know, cognitive uh, assistive technology that's come into play. I think that uh, this is one of those interesting things where um, they, you know, it's now been said that the uh, global war on terrorism, that uh, traumatic brain injury, is the signature uh, injury of the global war on terrorism. Uh, it's probably. Of the of the severe disabilities that that individuals have incurred, uh, it's the um, it's the most prevalent, and many of the individuals with spinal cord injury and amputations from the war have also uh, have um, traumatic brain injury associated with their injuries. I think it started to bring attention to the uh, large number of individuals that uh, have traumatic brain injury to sports and. And uh, automobile accidents and other accidents as well, and the, there's um, it's just there's a huge uh, I think the, uh, a gap I think probably between um, our knowledge and our and the needs for individuals with traumatic brain injury. There's uh, I know a number of approaches, and you've you've identified some. Uh, I seem to recall that there's uh, some investigators and some scientists and perhaps clinicians that. Uh, Believe that uh, there's some cellular therapies that may assist in uh, facilitating treatments in this area. Well, I think there's cellular therapies. I think probably um, there's also a lot of interest in biomarkers, and that uh, the idea that if you can use biomarkers for one um, to identify the individuals that have had traumatic brain injury and differentiate that from other diagnoses. Uh, you can use uh, potentially use uh, biomarker or biomarker type techniques then to uh, identify the sequelae of uh, post-traumatic uh, traumatic brain injury and then use that to guide therapeutic uh, interventions uh, of a number of times, pharmaceutical, cellular, um, activity-based, neuropsychological, and... Um, so, and then I think that the you know, last one is sort of the genetic uh, engineered uh, pharmaceutical or drug-based so solution. I think that once you, because of the, um, the sort of the distinct nature of traumatic brain injury and the way that different individuals react, that's one of those, that's probably one of the greatest promises as well. It doesn't look to, there are a few uh, drugs that work reasonably well with individuals with traumatic brain injury, but it's not uh, very responsive to systematic drugs. So the biomarkers are a diagnostic tool, and then you have these uh, various paths that you've just identified as the possible either singularly or in combination treatment options. Is that correct? 
Yeah, that's correct. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, I think that's how we're going to move have to move forward, and uh, yeah, that's you can in any field I guess of medicine it's in its nascent state. You need to you know, develop those diagnostic tool, tools and then use them then kind of go through the step of treatment planning. Dr. Cooper, this has been a, a fascinating discussion. And as I said earlier, your your vision and your enthusiasm and your leadership and technology that you've brought to the, these set of problems is uh, most interesting and fascinating. And I'd like to uh, uh, thank you for uh, joining us, and I hope we have an opportunity, not in five years, as I suggested in the discussion before, but much sooner than that to get an update on all these uh, interesting areas you're working on. Thank you very much. Thanks, John. It's been my pleasure, and I look forward to coming back and give you an update.